Hey everyone, this is the Manips and Sips podcast uh, featuring me, Dr. Jeremy Boyd, and my partner in crime, Dr. Brandon Cruz. Uh, today we're going to be talking about uh, adhesive capsulitis, or better known as uh, frozen shoulder, uh, just kind of how, th how things are, um, how things have evolved, the research, and how we approach things. Uh, before we get too much into the weeds of it, let me pass it off to Brandon. How's it going, Brandon? Hey, Jared. Thanks for the introduction. Excited to talk about this topic. I know we've been talking about this uh, recently as uh, this, this conversation came up in actually one of your fellowship threads. Uh, and I figured, you know, let's, let's not just keep it there. Let's, um, you know, record and talk about it uh, for our audience. So uh, that's, that's what brings us here today. Um, before we get going, let's talk about our drinks. I have my uh, Johnny Walker 18 that you got me. Where is it actually? I have it here. Made a nice dent in the bottle. You got nice. this from my birthday a couple there years ago. Uh, I'm drinking it. I'm in the office, so I don't have a, a snifter or anything. I have a coffee mug, which a student got, saying cracking necks and cashing checks. Nope. Uh, cracking backs and dropping facts. I think this is both? the back uh, side. So that's oh, uh, nice. a mug here. So um, that was a really good gift by an uh, intern of mine. So... What do you got? What do you got today? I know you are brewing a porterhouse, or not porterhouse, a porter with uh, <laughs> bourbon mix. Is that what you're drinking today, or that's not ready yet? No, no, that won't be ready for uh, uh, at least seven, eight more weeks, unfortunately. So, uh, yeah, I, uh, over the weekend brewed a uh, uh, bourbon barrel porter uh, style beer. Uh, so it'll be kind of cool. It's a, this will be my second batch that I've made. Um, in a couple of weeks, I get to add some, uh, the bourbon into the mix of it. So I'm excited. I'm a big Porter person also like bourbon. So should be uh, right up my alley. Um, how long has that got uh, to sit in there once you add the bourbon, uh, so, or eight weeks and then add the bourbon or. Yeah. So it's two weeks in the primary fermenter, which is what, you know, I poured everything into when I first made it. So after two weeks. Then I transfer it to a, a secondary fermenter. So it's pretty much one big bottle to another big bottle. And then after it sits there for a couple of weeks, then I can add the bourbon and have it sit there for a little bit. And then I can uh, bottle it and then it sits in the bottles for two weeks. So overall, right. a couple of summertime. Yeah, yeah. So, right when you want a nice, no, I was gonna say a nice kind of porter. <laughs> yeah, but uh, uh, definitely well, want it. it sit, and then we could crack it open in the wintertime. Yeah, that's a big thing. It's like you, you kind of pump out almost 50 beers with this sort of stuff. And um, so, I'm going to age a couple of them, keep them at 15 or so, and then yeah. have them in the winter and then age them for a couple of years afterwards. But, uh, nice. As long as I didn't screw it up, did have one faux pas. Um, I did burn one of the lines into the chiller as I was doing it, so we had to do a little triaging. Um, so it was a lot, a lot of colorful words came out there in that moment. I gotcha. But, uh, you put your uh, SCS knowledge to to use there with the exactly. So just put it on ice. That was that's that was the solution. So, um, but for today, I am I'm drinking. Uh, the 609 Indian Pale Ale from um, Glastow Brewing Company. Uh, my last student, Jamie Parent, um, she who's taken her her PET exam to pass grad school, um, gave me that on her last day. 
Nice. Um, so really good IPA, huge fan of Glastown um, Brewery. It's in Millville, a uh, small brewery, been around for a little bit. It was probably the brewery that I had the most beers from, but never actually been to until recently. Um, before, that's actually one of the last breweries I went to before COVID and everything like that. Um, so awesome, awesome brewery. And uh, for my glass collection, drinking uh, from Ocean Lab Brewing, and that's in Isla Verde, Puerto Rico. Um, in there yeah awesome by far one of my favorite brewery scenes of all time just it's on the beach stunning great music uh second level uh so if you're ever in um san juan or close to that area highly recommend that you guys go to see that but uh, cheers guys out there who don't take interns you should because you get some cool stuff along the way Um, yeah well we'll plug there If, if you're good to them if you're nice to them yeah at this point now, I get mostly alcohol. I mean, you, you seem yeah, to get more glasses. Yeah, I get, exactly. Just, I guess what are you getting? Clothes. I get like some clothes. quarters. I got a couple quarter zips because uh, that's pretty much all I wear in the clinic over my polos yeah. or quarter zips. Uh, that's a nice one too. So, um, But uh, yeah, I guess we should uh, move on to our topic here. Uh, yeah. He's capsulitis. Um, I guess... Uh, should kind of talk about, you know, or I guess there maybe our past experiences. I think sometimes that's what we've discussed um, in previous episodes, um, or maybe what some people are continuing to do. Um, yeah, I was just going to say, let's, let's kind of switch it up a little bit. Um, being that your um, fellowship, uh, I guess, discussion board um, was kind of what sparked this. Do you mind just giving us a little insight? Uh, I guess what the question was um, what your response is. And then I guess I'll chime in with uh, how I would treat it or what I typically do to treat. And then we'll kind of dive into the evidence and some stuff like that. Yeah, sure. Uh, that works. Uh, the question was, um, is from our virtual rounds uh, through my fellowship with uh, the Institute of Athlete Regeneration. Uh, and the question came up, um, the rounds finished um, actually online and uh, we had like a video chat first, but then uh, we were going at like two and a half hour uh, round there and we had to end it, but um, the rest were posted up and, you know, we can all chime in at our, at our own will there. Uh, one, one person asked um, what they have apparently a client who has adhesive capsulitis and what, were some recommendations or treatment strategies to treat them potentially distance based or, um, you know, based off of the current times, uh, via, via telehealth then via telehealth or I guess minimized of some sorts. Didn't exactly say telehealth, but something of that nature. Um, and then, uh, Toko, uh, who's the director of our fellowship, awesome therapist. He was just kind of chiming in and saying that, you know, for a lot of his early on, um, he's capsulitis is he doesn't really have a hands-on approach. And so I just kind of chimed in and, you know, I believe in a huge, uh, hands-on approach. Uh, there's some research to support it. So I backed up with the research talking about, you know, high velocity, low amplitude thrusts and a regional interdependence approach. Um, and you know, that's kind of what, you know, that I, you know, me and you were starting to talk about it and that's what 
decided to make a episode out of it. Yep. So I guess, I guess with that, uh, for the, for our viewers out there, how, I guess, what were your recommendations? How, how would you treat it? I guess, how would you treat it in the clinic? Uh, you know, with the full capability, I guess, of your, your repertoire arsenal. Um, and then, you know, how would you treat it, uh, remotely or in these circumstances where it's most likely uh, via telehealth? Yeah. So in my, I guess the ideal world, uh, and I believe the ideal world of physical therapy is, you know, the classic interaction between therapist and clinic, uh, and patient, um, you know, telehealth is a good option, but you know, I don't think it's a means to an end or something we should all just shift for, you know, a lot of businesses are going to be switching over to telehealth and, or not telehealth, remote working, uh, even after everything's figured out, but, I think physical therapy, uh, the real benefits is that kind of close to close interaction, but, uh, I regress. Yes. Uh, touch and just casual human interaction, uh, that, you know, picking up on cues that you can't really see on TVs and, or tell, yeah, telephones or view chat. chat, Um, but, um, you know, ideally if they're obviously with adhesive capsulitis, there's going to be some, um, range of motion and we know that the joint becomes restricted and um, that's one of the you know the clinical uh, presentations and signs um, whether it's you know a capsular pattern um, just sh- showing and limitations of range of motion both actively and passively um, so my main thing is to start off uh, predominantly with you know manual therapy I like to get things going first um, getting sort of neurophysiological effect that I can uh, decrease pain levels and then have the client, you know, capitalize on that. And, you know, then they're doing their exercises. And then while I'm doing that is that's when I start to discuss things, whether it's, you know, pain signs. Um, we know some of these individuals are, you know, have high stress, you know, shit hit the fan for them in life. Um, also talking about some other things so like comorbidities, um, you know, diet and sleep, and we know about diabetes and its impact. So that's when I'm starting to have my conversations, uh, try and do my best to have them as we're mobilizing. Um, so I prefer to do the, the more translational or your classic, you know, joint mobs cause they seem to be more effective. I'll also treat from a regional and their dependence thing. We'll talk more about that. And then, uh, yeah, go in and try and teach the client. I always tell my students and something I practice, if you do any sort of joint mobilizations, you should probably facilitate with some sort of self-technique as best as you can. Um, Yeah, some self-techniques just aren't as good as a hands-on technique. There's very few, if any at all, self high velocity techniques. I'm sure you can admit some people just go, <laughs> um, but um, you know, just either self joint techniques or some distraction techniques where they can distract the joint um, self AP glides, self inferior glides. So try and teach them that. And then following up with, you know, try and restore, you know, some range of motion in a pain-free manner versus what I used to do where I just like, just keep walking and do the inchworm up the wall keep going and going and going like there's your mark today push a little bit more and they're like okay and then the next time they came in they're 
five pegs down the day before the session before. So, um, and then, you know, I put a little bit probably more of an emphasis on a treating the, the strength deficits that may happen. And obviously the motor control pattern faults that are happening, just, you know, upper trap compensations, those sort of things that I just didn't really focus on early on just was like, all right, let's just get the range of motion addressing those versus just purely stretching and getting the range of motion back tend to get the range of motion back better than actually just typical stretches. So that's kind of how I would treat in, um, you know, in, in the clinic, um, from a telehealth or a distance standpoint, uh, I, uh, Definitely, you know, instead of obviously the hands-on sort of part, you know, I'm jumping right into just, you know, talking, educating. I haven't had, I'll be honest, I haven't had any telehealth clients for adhesive capsulitis, but if I did, um, you know, it's jumping right into that communication piece, you know, see how things are going. A lot of times our clients just need an ear uh, for us to listen to them, uh, talk about those same sort of comorbidities or their sleep habits or you know, are they eating like crap and feeling like crap? And that's, there's some, you know, research talking about inflammatory markers from food and those sort of things. Um, and then, you know, jumping more into those, maybe those self-mobilization techniques. And then the same thing, I'm looking and seeing how they're moving. Uh, I'm surprised. Thankfully we're, you know, we're having, you know, cameras like four, 4k and stuff. It's a easier pick up on some of the motor control patterns now. So I'm addressing it just as a as I would. A little tough sometimes because sometimes, obviously, even with motor control, I do like some guiding of the joint or those sort of things okay. as they're moving. Yeah, yeah, can't obviously do that. So that's a little bit limited. Um, but other than that, you know, that's how I try and you know distinct the two. But what about you, Brandon? Yeah, I, I think I'm gonna backpedal to, um, to I guess the starting point. I always double check and make sure it's a true adhesive capsulitis. I feel like adhesive capsulitis and impingement are these umbrella terms that just get tossed around, especially by physicians uh, when they spend two minutes with a patient and then they automatically know what's going on. Uh, I think we need to do a better job in terms of uh, making sure it's an actual, um, in this case, adhesive capsulitis. And that goes beyond uh, it being a capsular pattern. I mean, multiple mm-hmm. things could be capsular pattern. Um, and we need to really, I, I clear out the neck a lot. I mean, I've seen some, some patients come in and you would think it's an impingement or an, uh, he's capsulitis hallmark and you clear up the neck. And I mean, they've, you know, doubled their motion by just treating the neck. Uh, you do that. That's probably not adhesive capsulitis. Um, you know, they're probably having some, some ridiculous stuff and I've had people come in and not be able to raise up their arm at all. Um, you know, this, this height because of acute pain that's going on through because of their neck. And, you know, we go through the stages here. We're we're taught stages of, um, you know, the freezing stage, which is the most painful, the frozen stage, and then your thawing stage. Um, I think we're moving away from that a little bit. And Jerry, I know uh, when we were talking about this, you, you had brought it up. It's just like, what would you say? Irritable and not irritable stages basically is what we're at now. Yeah, actually my, uh, my employee, my, my therapist who also works and he's going through a temple residency is like what he's learning and what's just the most up to date. Right. Justin. Yeah. Yeah, we're, yes. We're, we're, we're um, 
uh, he, he was just like, he was mentioning, it was just like, yeah, now it's no longer like freezing, frozen, thawing and all that sort of stuff. It's painful state, non painful state. That's it. Um, more of like a, and, uh, there's no, I think there's a lot of people or a lot, even research trying to delineate or figure out when each phase started and ended and how to know when one started, which one ended, um, what treatments are best at whatever one and really just simplify it down to painful, non-painful. Um, so yeah. And I was like, yeah, I mean, that's really what it is. It's, um, I don't think anyone has a too good of understanding between freezing and, and frozen. Um, yeah, no, in yeah. my opinion. I mean, that's constantly changing. I think the one constant is that we, we don't always know. And, you know, the research that has done it is guidelines. It's there to kind of help you decipher what's going on, but everyone's timeline is going to be different. So you can't go by, you know, those first, uh, I think what was the first three to six months was freezing and then month six through 12 was frozen. And then um, month 12 through 18 was your thawing. At least that's what it was when I was studying for the OCS. Like we can't always go by those guidelines. Everybody has, or those timelines, everybody has a different timeline. So if you're going by what you, you learned in school, um, it may be outdated. And I, I think, I think that's a little bit of a problem with our profession, especially now we're coming out with doctorates um, and we have been coming out with doctorates. Everybody feels like, I shouldn't say everybody, there are a portion of therapists who feel like their education has stopped when they've graduated and, and they do like the bare minimum and that is it. And I don't say this to, to try and belittle or berate people. Um, you know, we're, we're no better just because we've decided to, to, you know, really go down the rabbit hole of residencies and fellowships and stuff. But I, I say it because I think if you're still predicating your, your treatment philosophy of what, you know, you learned, I don't know, five, 10 years ago or, or whatever the case may be, and you really haven't changed your, your treatment paradigm, um, you know, in about five or 10 years, you're doing your client into service. And that's unfortunate because pretty much everybody who has gotten this profession has said they want to help people. Well, are you really helping people to the best of the ability if you're not kind of staying up to things? And really what it comes down to, like you said, like we, we learned it one way and it's now kind of evolving. Um, you know, I guess our best version of treatment, I mean, that evolves. Like we, you and I have looked back and we were like, well, we, we missed the boat on that one. Like we fucked up. But <laughs> I think as long as you're, you're making the steps and, and, and taking quality courses or maybe not even courses, but doing, staying up on the research. Um, and the more you learn, the more you understand that you don't know. And then now that that's like a power in itself because that allows you to be like, okay, I have, you know, these different variables, let me take a step back and see what, see which of these variables or, or which of these guidelines um, or articles apply to this patient. And that's what it really comes down to. Are you versed well enough in the literature uh, to then be able to, you know, pluck it out and then be like, okay, this, this subset or, or these guidelines apply to this patient. And maybe this guideline uh, applies to this patient because at the end of the day, it's the end of one. Um, mm -hmm. so I think, 
I think we need, you know, to do a better job of that. Um, understanding, like you, you brought up diabetes mellitus. Um, a lot of, a lot of the patients who have diabetes, I mean, if we're just going by the stats here, um, they're women in their fifth decade. Uh, women are more common than men. People who have diabetes or thyroid issues or have had a uh, heart attack, a myocardial infarction, or some type of trauma are probably the, the people who have true, um, you know, have true adhesive capsulitis. And then we also have uh, primary adhesive capsulitis versus secondary. So mm-hmm. I, I think it, you know, before we jump into treatment, we need to understand um, – we need to understand what are the driving factors or possible driving factors that the patient's dealing with. And I see you have this slide up. Uh, can you, Oh, could you put that up there again? I, I didn't even get the uh, chance. To there. I was, I was in my own world ranting. Uh, uh yeah. It was like, you're, the, you're talking sorry, about education. So I figured I was like, yeah, this is a good one to put up. Yeah. Uh, basically how much we know versus how much we think we know versus that one. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so, so. We, what was the primary study on this one? I mean, I've seen this before, but I, I this don't is a, know. This is a study. I, I just thought it was, uh, it was somebody not oh. nicely put that up there one day. Of, oh, okay. You know, I, if it is a study, uh, that's, that's Yeah, so that's, uh, I think in the beginning we could all say, I know I was. I thought I was a hot shot coming out of school, and even in school I was like, I, I know a, a bunch of stuff, right? And then oh, I, I started to learn more. This. I was like, yeah, I, I don't know that much. Um, there's a lot more to learn and then you kind of, you kind of go through, through this pendulum here and how much I actually know. And then now I, I think we're, you know, we're, we're trending towards is probably knowing a decent amount, but understanding or thinking that we don't know that, that much. So, um, yeah. you know, that, that's a sign of just, you know, becoming, you know, more humble and, and more of an expert in your area. Absolutely. I always say there's so much more to learn and, Every student's like, oh, you're the you 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 know more than anyone I've met. I'm like, uh, you should talk to more people then. But yeah. I have a funny story. It's like I came out as a hot shot, you know, um, got my doctor and everything. And did they give you the um, was it a quiz for your low back in the residency, like just a competency sort of how you'd approach things, sort of? Oh, uh, I can't remember. Um... During the back, I remember Heidi gave us like the start back in that quiz, but the low back. No, this started, a, what happened? That one? It was, that a, one it was legitimately like a quiz how you would treat someone or, you know, right. certain things. I just, I don't remember every question. I can't remember. Uh, Maybe. I mean, you were right behind me, so. Yeah. I was just, unless they added it in, but I, don't, mm-hmm. I can't remember at this point. I should anyway. ask Justin if he got, well, no, he hasn't done the back yet uh, when he gets there, but um, I took it. I was like, oh, I'm going to crush this bitch. And. I can't remember if I think it gave it gave the answers right there and then, um, but I got like crushed on it, and I was just graduating. I'm like, you know, this is you know, I I should know this stuff. And it wasn't that I wasn't taught; it was just how things have changed so much, um, and just being able to tie it all together. So that was I, that was a quick quick drop from you know I thought I had everything and went. Phew right back down but let me just stop sharing this but uh funny story about that i got my ass whooped in like the first day of residency but anywho um let's go back into talking about you brought up some of those demographics um or comorbidities that adhesive capsulitis people may have 
Um, yeah. I don't know if there was any other ones that you wanted to bring up, but then I figured it's like, what do you see clinically that suggests, hey, this is definitely adhesive capsulitis versus, you know, subacromial impingement, rotator cuff, bursitis, whatever it may be, or something from the cervical spine, obviously. Um, uh, we jump into that more of a clinical or objective standpoint. Yeah. So I'll say, um, to touch upon the first part about the comorbidities, I say women, definitely. I've seen more women with adhesive capsulitis than men. Um, usually one of the two. Sometimes I've seen both diabetes and thyroid. Uh, I haven't seen too many, uh, not off the top of my head, even any, maybe one, and I'm sure there's someone in there that had a heart attack prior. So I, that one hasn't been held true for me. Um, I've seen adhesive capsulitis secondary to trauma because of a, a fracture or somebody I've seen a couple who have frozen shoulder because the surgeon was way too aggressive in what the labral clean out that they did. And they got, um, they received frozen shoulder from that and also being immobilized too long. So those are secondary to me, to me, that's not even true frozen shoulder. Um, that's just, we need to get you moving. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, the other part was what uh, differentiating is that what you said, and, and that kind of goes. Once you got to, the thought, yeah, yeah. Um, this would actually be good for I know another topic that you wanted to talk about, uh, which is um, using manual therapy as, as our assessment. So you know, I'll screen out the neck and I'll note my impairments, T spine, shoulder. I'll see if they have. Um, capsular uh, limitations and things like that. But I want to see how they respond to my, my treatment, um, not even treatment, to manual therapy. So I'll play around with some posterior glides, some inferior glides, some combined motion glides, and we'll pull up some videos for you guys later just so you guys can see what I'm talking about. And I'll see how they respond. I'll treat the neck. Uh, I'll assess neuro, uh, neural tension and neurodynamics, uh, maybe even do some treatment if I can. And I mean, I'm assessing everything to see where the restrictions are, where the, the impairments are, and what I think or what I deem the low-hanging fruit to treat to see where I can get my biggest bang for my butt. But while I'm doing that, I'm also going to see how they respond to my, treat, uh, to my, to my screen or my uh, intervention, which is really my assessment. Um, so, if I mean, if they respond quickly – to treatment to the neck or treatment to the shoulder or T-spine, whatever the case may be. I'm like, maybe this isn't um, frozen shoulder because a true frozen shoulder isn't going to have that, that true response. And I would say, you know, don't get me wrong that you definitely have those, those outliers. I think I've had a couple of shoulders where like I got true frozen shoulders where I got like 10 degrees of motion back in one day. But I would say the ones that, um, were diagnosed with frozen shoulder, but really didn't have it responded well to treatment of the neck and neuroclides and maybe some shoulder stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Does that, does that kind of answer your question? Yeah. I uh, mean, yeah. other, other things that, um, you know, besides doing that and I do a similar approach, um, is, you know, you know, the assessment of the glenal humeral joint. If, if it's like, I've had a similar presentation of individuals, mostly females, mostly post-traumatic or mostly diabetes. Um, And I feel like most middle-aged elderly women typically have thyroid issues. It's always hypothyroidism. They can never remember it. 
They're like some sort of thyroid thing. I'm like, is it the slow one or the fast one? The slow one. I'm like, yeah. oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've gained, I've gained X amount of weight, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. a slow one. Um, <laughs> is, if you get your hands on a true adhesive capsulitis, that, that, that bitch is – that thing's not moving. Like, yeah, that, that glenerol human joint you're testing out and for your posterior glides and – Especially if it's the first time you're you're taking a look at them, it's it's not moving for a highly mobile, the most mobile joint in the human body. It's not moving, and if you have no idea how that feels, look at the other side. Uh, if you if the person's been diagnosed with bilateral adhesive capsulitis, I would highly judge that. Um, I don't know if any clinical cases, or I don't know, have you ever seen a bilateral not, not at the same time i've seen it like they have it uh, and then they get it on the other side like exactly. a year or two later mm-hmm. um after the other one's been resolved or close yeah. to it that sort of thing um but yeah you know you know get your hands in there and like move that joint around and then i think a good thing i gained from residency is you know that active range of motion and that passive range of motion are equal um is you know beyond like capsular stuff and those sort of things is if it's like they go a certain distance 90 degrees and you try to push it some more and it stops at like 93 um and you can't go any further you know you know that that becomes part of your assessment um of adhesive capsulitis not always the case um some people are just that guarded just that fear moving when it's an acute painful injury or something of that nature but if it's been a while and those sort of things and you're looking at it, it's like, wow, I can't, it won't budge. And it's, you get more experience you get, the more you get to feel like this person scared shitless or is guarding a lot and it's not letting me move their arm or I'm pushing this thing and I can't move it any further. And that's where that, you know, that difference, difference um, is probably at. So um, though, yeah, those are things I, I typically will see in, adhesive capsulitis but i agree with you you know start treating some other things um and we'll talk about the uh regional interdependence study um by wong and uh they get into a little bit more of the weeds of like not just treating the cervical or thoracic spine or neural glides they went into like doing scapular mobilizations manipulations ac joint sc joint um you know which can affect so it starts becoming, is it, you know, are they responding very well because it's something else or just from a regional independence, we're doing so many things and it starts to free up stuff. So, yeah. um, um, and I think I have an understanding that it could be both. I mean, there's mm-hmm. nothing wrong with that. At the end of the day, I don't care if I'm treating anything that can link to the shoulder and they get better. I'm happy. The patient's happy. Mm-hmm. I don't always need to know why or what's going on i mean i think it's important to know all the factors that play into the shoulder moving properly which is the neck the t-spine the scapula the glenohumeral joint the ac joint the sc joint you need inferior depression of your your clavicle so you can get that that end range uh abduction or forward flexion mm-hmm. and i could see so very confidently say that the sc joint is or the clavicle is probably one of the most undertreated joints in um you know orthopedic manual or orthopedic therapist uh you know treat i I don't know why i guess you just forget about it um but yeah i I will also say kind of with what we're saying you know 
I have seen presentations of like, for lack of a better term, a, a double crush. I, I know we think of double crush with like a ridiculous, uh, you know, cervical ridiculous and like a carpal tunnel, but mm. where that patient had definitely, definitely had to have cervical ridiculous stuff that their rotation, their was, well, their whole cervical motion was crap, but the rotation was like 30 to 40 degrees. Um, they had winter's cluster. All of it was, uh, was positive. I mean, positive up tension test, uh, distraction, positive spurlings, like everything just screamed ridiculous, but their, their pain was probably, um, their pain and their motion was also limited too, which was some adhesive capsulitis. And then it's like, did, did some neck pain, did, you know, the, uh, cervical radicular lead to the frozen shoulder, did the frozen shoulder lead to the cervical radic. And I remember treating him and he, he, I think he's 50. He's actually my dent, uh, not my dentist, my eye doctor. Um, and I treated his neck and I was like, this is neck. This is, I was like, I think you have probably both, but I think a lot of it will clear up with neck. So he was in like the, the freezing phase. So, I mean, acute pain, just irritable, couldn't sleep, just miserable. Um, I was treating his neck, treating his T-spine, treating his neck. Um, that, that cleared up and his shoulder acute pain where he like couldn't even move it cleared up. I would say within two or three weeks. Um, it was probably, I think I was seeing him one to two times a week. So we're talking probably four to six sessions he cleared up, but he still had the limited range that you would see in uh, adhesive capsulitis. Um, so, you know, I think that was a case where it, it was both, but we got through that freezing phase a lot faster in only two or three weeks where he was at least able to manage it and sleep and function and, and continue his job of, um, you know, being an eye doctor and examining, cause he said he couldn't even do this. You know, they have that, that eye thing you look into, they say one or two. I love that yeah. skit where they say one or I, two. I got to play it for Especially you. towards the end where yeah. you're like, shit, I don't know which one. They both yeah, look like, good. Uh, like, yeah. This is a fucking test. Are they testing me? Yeah. So you're, you're, you're basing your answers, what they think. You yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, um, but yeah, so he, he cleared up with that stuff. Um, and while he had limited motion, it was improving and a lot less irritable. And he was at least able to go do some stuff. Uh, and I did suggest for him to go get a, uh, corticosteroid injection. Um, cause that's, uh, what the evidence, um, supports. And that's what I've seen work as well. If it's a true irritable, uh, frozen shoulder, get one, maybe two injections. You'll know if it works after the first one. Um, and then, you know, we go from there. One of the few times I will, uh, suggest getting a corticosteroid injection and that's usually from what i remember of the evidence it's usually with a three to four month marker from onset of symptoms is the best time to implement yeah so um, so basically in, in that freezing phase or what was thought to be the original freezing phase was that that three to four month time frame time frame so then, uh, um Basically, the earlier the better. I mean, someone with acute frozen showed that oh. shit, and I feel bad for them. I'm like, just go get it, out of, you know, so you're not in, not in pain. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, I don't know, man. Doctors, I've seen physicians. They're just like, yeah, I'll give this injection. And I, like the most recent patient I had, she was like, yeah, should I go to PT? And he was just like, if you want. And I was like, what? Why? Why? 
why do physicians not feel like we are viable options? Why do they feel? And then he's like, yeah, if it doesn't work in like a month, come back, I'll give you another one. And it's like, so you want the patient to do nothing for a month. Mm-hmm. It, it doesn't, it, it makes no Thanks. sense. Um, and it bores my blood. And I think we as therapists need to one, educate doctors better. Um, and two, be able to treat this better. So patients know that they come to therapy and not get a fucking injection and rely on a doctor. Cause a lot of them, I'm sorry. They, there's a Lewis CK skit where he talks about how a physician uses none of his medical, medical education for, for his advice. And I feel that way sometimes about some of these physicians that just say, Oh, injection, wait two weeks and, and do nothing. And they say rest. Like what kind of fucking advice is that? Refer them out to a competent PT or, or another medical professional that can help, uh, I guess your injection be better. Mm-hmm. Uh, but. No, it goes in along the same, I guess, concept of like, you know, our manual techniques is yeah. That corticosteroid injection um, whether it's a true inflammatory process or just the pain relieving effect, it bought you a window. Use it. You know, if you're taking someone who's downright traumatized by the fact of lifting up their arm is shearing pain and you give them a shot, yes, that might help out their pain at rest or something. But more often than not, they're not going to probably move their own arm. Just from experience and those sort of things. So you just hear people like, yeah, I didn't do anything. Um, you know, we know motion is lotion and, you know, getting things moving. Again, you just want to capitalize on these opportunities, whether, you know, I've been, I went from, you know, I guess being part of the whole team coming out of school to becoming a PT or nothing, screw everyone else. I got this to be more collaborative, being part of my approach, refer out to injections or imaging as necessary. Um, but, you know, it's, it's got to be, you know, timing and we, need to know what's the best at what times as, as you said you know you prescribed uh, or you told your client to get an injection um you know at the appropriate times but maybe it's because physicians or the research out there is that the overall prognosis of adhesicapsulitis you know it's a year or two years will resolve itself and i start to debate that research out there is like maybe it's taking that long just because we suck at it we aren't doing the right things to shorten this up. Maybe it doesn't have to be a whole year. I know in the cases where I've had some people, they responded much quicker than that and gotten better to functional levels a lot quicker than two years or a year, just in a couple months. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's kind of a, that's when you can kind of start to, I guess, abuse the, the research and, you know, one person study or two people study again, um, may, may not be what's best for everybody, but at least you, the least you can do is try. Um, and then, you know, you go with physicians and there's other research just with physicians giving a kind of a bad vibe about physical therapy to the clients or a leads to worse outcomes. If they're like, yeah, go try it. It's probably not going to work. I'll see you in a couple of weeks. Versus, hey, I can, you know, try this. This is definitely going to help you. Outcomes are, are different. Yeah, so, you know, preframing it, preframing it in a positive light versus a negative light. Um, and I, I think, I mean, that that one says a, a lot about our profession where it is that um, uh, sucks. That the fact that other professions are like, yeah, eh, try it, or that um, we see five people an hour and somehow it's okay and there's no quality of care. 
or that people don't follow up and take their profession seriously once they leave school where they're doing the bare minimum, um, you know, for whatever reason. So I, I know people might get mad, but if you're just getting by with your credits every year, you're doing the bare minimum. Uh, I mean, people are relying on you to get better. Um, and that's, that's the bottom line. So you get, you know, life, life gets in the way and things like that, but, uh, you know, try and provide the best, the best care that you can. Yeah. No, it is, it is, it is people's lives in their, in your hands, you know, whether, you know, people are going to give you probably at most a two week window before they drop off. And it's amazing what you can do in two weeks or a couple days or a day or fuck it 15 minutes um if you actually know what you're doing but um before we go down that as you would say rabbit hole and start ranting and bitching a little bit but um you know speaking of other timelines and those sort of things is uh you know manipulations um we were talking about manipulations under anesthesia manipulations you know in the clinic uh um from what i remember the research supports it um anything before six months is highly effective um but uh yeah let's talk about that um you know yeah by original yeah go ahead brother brandon yeah i was just gonna say we're, we're on a topic where we're, we're talking about where our profession is and what we need to do better so let, let's dive into this video ah shit did i lose it when i closed oh here it is all right so uh, I'm going to take over the screen here, if you don't mind. Yeah, all yours. All right. So this is an actually our upcoming course on upper, uh, lower and upper extremity manipulations. But I, I put, included this in because I wanted people to see this is what's going on. And I'm sure this is not the only variation of manipulations that physicians will do. But th this is really all that they're, they're going on here. Uh, let, me, let me back it up for you guys. He ended up developing frozen shoulder after his injury. So um, before thinking about doing a decompression, we're going to try like to a fairly young-ish yeah. male. He had frozen shoulder. Suspicious. All right, look, this is what this is all that manipulation under anesthesia is, which, by the way, this is a, the long axis variation, which is more dangerous because that leads to humeral, head, uh, humeral neck fractures or head fractures, one of those two. And label tears and rotator cuff tears and pretty much everything bad. We were talking, but he has some cracks. And then he externally oh, rotates it. He gets some cracks one. here. And then that's it. The rest of the video, he's just ranging it. So I'll save you guys that. But this that's all that he's doing. And you're telling me we can't spend some time learning how to just manipulate? So let me lower that. And actually, that's our second one. Let me back up here. Oh, sorry. I'm still learning technology, guys. Let's go here. How do you get this little bar to go down? I think you just don't do anything near it. And there, you go. there you go. All right. So, look, I have my hands around the patient's. Let's go back because you guys missed a little bit of it.
so I'm using the tower there to, to um, block the scapula from winging out because these patients are obviously going to be bowed down and tied down. My hands are going to be around the humeral head here, right on the joint line. I want good control. And I'm just mobilizing a joint, and then I add a little thrust there. You do that with impatient tolerance. You don't have to be extremely forceful. I'm not asking you to do what the, the physician does where they bring the arm straight back, but just um, – basically mobilizing it, adding that quick impulse. If you get some cavitations and some scar tissue breaking up or adhesions, cool. Or maybe it's just a neurophysiological reset. And uh, I'll save that topic for a, a little later because we'll talk about that. That's an inferior glide. This is a lateral one. So hopefully with the, the hopes that we're going to improve abduction primarily, but you'll probably get some carryover as well. So, and just so you know, obviously this, this uh, my model here, she does not have frozen shoulder, but I've done each of these techniques to uh, my patients with frozen shoulder um, mm -hmm. with good success. And obviously maybe not do it to everybody. You don't do it when they're in extreme pain. You have to gauge their irritability levels. Um, and I would say the first two, um, especially the first one is good for somebody maybe who's more irritable. And these last two are, are probably good for somebody who is less irritable. Um, but these are just four variations I wanted to share with you guys because some of the manipulation uh, talks about it. And Jeremy's going to talk about that next with his, some of his articles. And, you know, that is that. So not to say, and Jeremy, I know you said that, um, you know, you've gone from – being a team player to a PT only to now you, you, you pick and choose cause you, you've been around the block a few times and you know, but like it is the risk of a sending a patient to get a manipulation under anesthesia uh, worth it when you could probably do it in the clinic yourself. Um, obviously not doing it under anesthesia. Uh, hopefully we get, we don't let the patient get to the point where they need to go for a manipulation under anesthesia. Um, but this is where we can be a viable option. And I, I know there's financial gain and incentive for a, a physician to go in the OR room and, uh, and charge for surgery for, for something like that. But, uh, aside from that, I mean, if you're not performing manual therapy and practicing and honing your skills to be able to perform something like this, I think, uh, I think you're, you're doing your patients a, a disservice, uh, and not doing it. But, um, I'll pass it off to you, Jerry. I know you had a couple of articles uh, that looked at manipulation and regional interdependence. Yeah. Um, yeah. So thankfully I haven't had to make the refer out to a manipulation or anesthesia for all my clients. Um, one person I tried to uh, was a knee way back when, and they said, no, it's better than what we thought. So stick with it. So I, I, I typically have higher, you know, expectations of most surgeons or those sort of things. They said, you know, stick with it. Um, so not, not to toot my own horn or anything like that, but mainly is because we're doing things like this is, you know, how different is what you're doing, which is also safer than what that other, you know, video was. Um, yeah, they're not going under that alone is safe. Yeah. And again, like how often are actually surgeons doing that? Like they showed, like now that, you know, those MUAs are now done similar to what you did, which just called transitional manipulation versus a long axis style. 
but think about that. If you're, you know, mobilizing, you know, five people's shoulders a day, doing these high velocity stuff, who's probably better at it? Uh, patient's probably more comfortable with you because you already developed you know, a relationship over multiple weeks or months. Um, and let's face it, you probably have quicker hands and those sort of things. Obviously they have the benefits of them being lights out. So that's why yeah, I always say these patients come out sore as fuck afterwards and not being able to move their arm for like a week. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and then they need like therapy, like what, like five days a week. So now I, need, like, I yeah, think that's a protocol a week intense. And for what, when I could have done the same thing, they wouldn't have been sore or as sore. Um, and yeah, there's just less risk. I'm not going to fracture your arm. Um, and I do it every day. I mean, we, we manipulate every single day. Um, but anyway, not to, uh, make this about yeah. what we do. Yeah. What we yeah. Do. But, uh, no, it's just, you know, kind of our, our point there, but yeah. I always say it was, we should as therapists screw the whole, you know, our next responsibility thing is we should be either be able to have physical therapy as a BYO or we should be able to prescribe laughing gas either or, or, you know, local Little knock cold. them out for a hot, hot couple minutes. Not, nothing like you know, where they need a pick line or anything like that. But, you know, I think that would be best. And then for those special cases, either laugh them up or here's a couple of shots. Let's get to work. Or let us go into that. RR with you and uh, we'll do the manipulation. Which I think Scott did in our, uh, one of our faculty, our fellowship, our residency. He, he, he had the opportunity to do that, which is kind of That's cool. Awesome. Um, but yeah. Um, so in regards to, you know, manipulation versus, uh, mobilization. Um, you know, both are, you know, probably better than nothing. Um, but in regards to, let me see if I can, uh, put that up. And in comparison, this study, um, which we got in residency, uh, you know, comparison of high grade, uh, techniques which you demonstrated both high grade and low grade mobilizations uh, found that you know manipulations um, were superior in you know gaining range of motion uh, comparison uh, for people with adhesive capsulitis um, so you know it's something that we should you know implement uh, I, I don't think it's I don't think it's taught much too um, you well, know like high velocity, oh, yeah, the shoulder. Like, when is that ever taught? I don't think I've ever taken con ed class, and I've taken a lot of con ed classes. Obviously, we've done residency and fellowships and those sort of things, but outside of that, um, I haven't had any students that had any of idea of these sort of things. Um, and you know, if that is what is being used to in surgery to free things up. Why, why aren't we doing it in the clinic? That's in theory, you know, one of the more effective techniques if shit hits the fan, all right, we gotta, we gotta, you know, knock them out and do this technique. Why can't we do our versions of it in the clinic? So yeah, go ahead there, Brandon. Um, just yeah, I was just gonna say, you bring up a great point with why isn't it taught? And I was just, as you were saying that, I was reflecting, I was like, yeah, I haven't learned it in, in any courses. We didn't learn shoulder manipulations in residency um, other than the fact 
uh, I can't remember if they said it there, but basically there's a saying, if you, if you mob it, you can manip it. So then it was like, all right, well, let's, if I'm mobbing this, let, let's kind of open up the reins here a little bit. Um, I think I picked some up along the way with some mentoring with fellows. Um, and I think in a and then a lot of it was just self, um, I guess, learning, just kind of playing around with some stuff too. So you combine, combination of those three there. Um, and which is why I was like, all right, we need to make this course because it's not being taught there. And it's such an effective tool, especially for, um, especially for, you know, clinicians to learn, not even just for adhesive capsulitis, but for other, um, other diagnoses such as radial head, scaphoid lunate, uh, scaphoid, uh, cuboid, uh, fibular head, uh, things like that. So, I mean, you could really do the whole, whole body here. Yeah. Um, you mind, uh, switching off screen share? I want to show an article as well. A couple articles, actually. I don't know if you had anything to say there. No, I meant, um, yeah, I think it's something. Yeah, yeah, you you hit all the points, um, so and I'll here's, here's, prep the regional interdependence article as well. Yeah. So um, here's another one by Boyles. I mean, this one's a manipulation file, regional interscaling um, block as well. But you know, the the articles that they talk about here and the patients that improved were the ones that got here. You go, Jeremy. Translational manipulations. Um, this technique is utilized uh, to be safe and effective because small amplitude, high velocity, short level arm are uh, better than long level arm techniques, right? So we saw in that video before that the long, they use a long level arm. Well, we could do a shorter one. So that's, that was kind of the, the evolution there. I mean, it, it kind of goes into some case descriptions there, but uh, I guess, Jared, we can link these in the, the podcast episode if you guys want these articles or you can mm-hmm. just email them for, for us. But um just while I have the screen, the screen share before I pass it back off to you. This was a great one. I, I love this. I, I actually, I went through this. I think this article came out when we were in residency and I was dry needling like a madman. And um, I was like, oh, dry needling. But then, this is not to say this is about dry needling. This is this context. Like I love these, these case studies. Like people say case reports aren't good research because they're like low on the totem pole. I, I think that's a crock of shit. Um, I got insight to these three gentlemen's um, thought process by reading this article and what they did here. And I was able to, at that time, compare, oh, is my treatment like one of the best people in this um, industry, what he does? That that was kind of my thought process when I was reading this. Do I match up to Tim Flynn and, and Derek um, and Shane? Um, so, you know, look at what they do here. The exercises over the chair, thoracic extension. What did that do? And we've talked about this before, Jer, how we layer our treatment. Mm. Well, that's following up their thrust manipulation to this, uh, CT region. So cervical region, thoracic region and CT junction session two, same thing. They did that and they added the thoracic. Um, they looked at AC and SC joint mobilizations. They looked at passive range. I mean, this was their treatment initially, was all manipulation regionally um, to avoid an irritable patient at the shoulder. And then as things started calming down, 
they started working on glenohumeral joint and passive range and they integrated dry needling and they progressed them exercise wise. But when we talk about regional interdependence, I'm starting with the neck and, and T-spine. And uh, after you share your article, I'll, I'll jump back into why we should manipulate T-spine um, for a lot of patients with shoulder, shoulder pathologies. But hopefully that gives you guys some insight on you know, how some really skilled, skilled clinicians are, are treating. And this is not a randomized control trial, um, but they had great sessions or, or great outcomes in only 13 sessions here. Um, so just give you guys some perspective. Yeah. And if anything, you know, uh, that this does and something I kind of look at from when I was a novice clinician to where I'm now is just overall pain, um, is yeah, you may, I still feel like, you know, the range of motion improves, but you know, most of these people are pretty debilitating pain, can't sleep, can't function and those sort of things. And what I can say is starting implementing these things and that painful cycle that's supposed to last for months, that will subside fairly quickly. They'll get back to like, oh, I can sleep a little bit, you know, I can sleep better. It doesn't bother me throughout the day as much. It's when I reach up and try and achieve new ranges of motion. So that's achieved pretty quickly with, you know, potentially like these regional independence or thrust techniques. Um, so... Hey, hey. And with that, our goal shouldn't just be pain. What, what's the why? It will decrease pain so they can what? So they can sleep, so they can reach into a cabinet, so they can pick up their kid. So like tie your goal, especially your own clinicians, tie pain to a certain activity. You know, we, you won't get denied as much if you're tying that pain to something specific and you're saying, I'm performing this technique so – we improve this function. And now you're drawing that line and connecting the dots for, for um, well, not, you know, not only documentation, but if you, you have to send an authorization or, or get on a peer to peer call or whatever the case is now, now you have a reason where you can sit there toe to toe and basically argue with uh, those idiots that try and deny you visits um, and not just say, Oh, I have to fix their pain or the range of motion. Well, why? And what are you doing that's adding value to that? Cause you can't just say exercises for all your non-manual therapists um, that are there because they'll, they'll say, Oh, give them a home exercise program. So, mm. you know, taking it that next level. Absolutely. And <clears throat> so hold on, I'm just trying to put this back up. So we're talking about um, the regional independence. This was a, um, study by Wong et al. Uh, this is a case series and we were talking about, um, he also has a, he's involved in a systematic review, kind of debating the things of whether frozen shoulder kind of the stages or doing things right. Um, but in this case series, which I think was at least five or six, five clients, um, multiple weeks, nine, 13, two, 30, 17, um, what they did was um, a lot of manipulations uh, and you can all show the outcomes, but uh, these are initial findings, flexion, abduction, you know, external rotation, your classic finds. I believe all these people in this were referred by physicians. So it wasn't a, this is a maybe sort of thing. Um, 
this was more obviously, you know, again, there's some debate on, you know, whether our physicians are diagnosing correctly, but based off these findings and stuff, it would suggest, you know, that these people had adhesive capsulitis, but um, their approach, let me see where they were at. Uh, that passed by? Yep, I did. Um, four regions, the shoulder girdle, SC joint, first rib, AC joint, glenoral humeral rotator cuff, scapular thoracic, and the spine were all the areas where manual therapy was applied. Um, so they did a variety of high velocity, low amplitude thrust, mobilization with movements, osteopathic manipulations um, to those areas. And their outcomes were, were, were pretty good as, you know, how much they increased were a group of uh, 62 degrees uh, for flexion, 100 for abduction, 66 for external rotation. So, um, and 14.8 sessions in a average of 7.86, 7.6 weeks. Um, so again, using that regional interdependence approach, um, you know, can result in just not, again, also those range of motion uh, sort of things. So these are the techniques that they received. Um, I try to be a little bit more specific, uh, and maybe they were as well, of, you know, I try and find which is the best technique I'm trying to assess as I'm doing it is, well, that resulted in the best gain. I want to keep hammering home that one. Maybe I'll evolve it a little bit more. Maybe thoracic spine manipulation did good. I did like, let's say the, the pistol or something like that or the seated. All right, maybe I'll play around with a couple different more um, and build off the top of it. But, you know, in this group, it seemed like they did just a variety of all ones to multiple areas and, you know, how many of, you know, us can say in 14 sessions and less than two months were again, those type of range of motion measurements, um, in the five clients that they've had in your most recent five clients. So, um, I think it's something we definitely need to implement, obviously tougher when it's someone over distance to tell off. <laughs> and I, I think, you know, when it's over distance, it's how can you get creative? Um, can you use foam rollers uh, to address T-spine impairments, whether it's extension, rotation, combined retention, uh, rotation or extension? Uh, can you use uh, super bands? Uh, let me pull this up for you guys here. Um, yeah, using especially uh, – you know, super bands are, are, are mainstream now, especially in the world of uh, CrossFit and stuff. Like, have patients buy these. These cost $10. They can anchor it to a banister or a door. Um, they can do these different shoulder mobilizations or stretches, uh, you know, however you, you, you deem fit. Um, this is something, this is your SSMP here, or SSMP that you like, Jer. Um, you know, I'm do, having the patient do a posterior glide, and you could have them – actively uh going to forward flexion or just hold that hold that in a sustained glide um lateral glides here inferior glide is another ss uh mp1 now you're working combined motion functional internal rotation with a lateral glide functional internal rotation with distraction 
you know, cross body, there's been debate is cross body stretch better versus uh, uh, sleeper stretch. Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, you guys can, can get creative here, functional external rotation. I mean, these are all things you can easily send them this stuff, uh, just demonstrate it for them, explain it to them, walk them through it. Uh, this is how you incorporate manual therapy, you know, via this distance. Um, mm-hmm. While I'm here, and we're talking about, I know you're saying you, you do a lot of uh, T-spine manips, Jer. Uh, we have this article here by Cleland in 2004, looking at the short-term effects of thoracic manipulation and lower, lower trap uh, muscle strength and activation. Uh, so they found out after you perform a thoracic manipulation, uh, EMG activity and, and strength of lower trap increases. Now, that's what they were looking at was lower trap. I'm sure you can probably extrapolate it to serratus or mid-trap or rhomboids or whatever. Um, but, you know, couple that, perform a manual therapy technique with this article here by uh, Mike Ronald. Uh, which looks at the best exercises to perform for rotator cuff and periscapular strength exercises. Uh, I think he has a, here we go. And you do some manual therapy, you have them hop on a foam roller and then you do these exercises based upon what you think their biggest impairments are. And now understanding that manual therapy is going to help with muscle activation. Now we can now, follow up with some lower trap and middle trap exercises and get a bigger bang for a buck. Um, I think that's how you really put all this stuff together in terms of, uh, you know, not only in treatment, but uh, telehealth, uh, using manual therapy versus trying to make the patient more independent using, you know, self mobilizations or a home exercise program. Uh, You have this article here by Yang. It looks at uh, scapular mobilizations. Uh, scapular mm-hmm. manipulations. Uh, I'll pull up a video for you guys here. Um, on scap stuff. And for our viewers who are listening in and obviously can't see the videos, we, we will we post this on our Facebook so you can watch it later. Um, but just to keep the meantime, uh, Brandon mentioned shoulder uh, SSMP, which is a shoulder symptom modification procedure. If anyone wanted to look that up, that's by Jeremy Lewis. Just a way to ch- just modulate, change people's symptoms as they're doing a painful task for the shoulder. Look at that stud. I'm trying limit the volume here on, on this because I, I voice over these. Protraction manipulation, have the... Is this the volume? I guess that's the yep. volume. All right. So there's a pause here because these are instructional videos. So I'm voiced over, I'm talking you through how to perform these techniques. So I pause it so you guys can see where my hand placements are, my setup, so you guys can, can do this on your own. But if you look here, there's a protraction manipulation. I have the patient here, and then I thrust up. Um, I'm not going to show you all of them, but you can do a posterior tipping one. You can do a retraction one. You could just do scapular clocks. I mean, you can really get creative with it. You could do a depression one. Um, you know, and that, you know, these, these, these patients tend to be the most gunked up 
right, Roger, where they're just – that whole air is just bogged down. I think that's what you were saying earlier mm-hmm. with, um, you know, are they getting better because you did regional interdependence treatment or, you know, are they getting better because we just did a whole bunch of stuff? Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah. No, those are uh, good, uh, good pros of wisdom there, good videos of, again, um, at least play around with it, everyone, you know. Um, as Brandon said, uh, you get from someone anything you can mope, you can manip. If you're just not comfortable with, you know, manipulations, haven't learned any, you know, try and just add a couple quick thrusts as long as the patient's, you know, cleared and everything like that, you know, see how it goes. Um, but you know, what, I guess the case uh, point there is, you know, seems like when we do some sort of manual, you know, interventions, people seem to do better with this cases. So, um, I think that's, uh, about yeah, it this, there. This was a, this was a long one. We, we was, got into it. So yeah, which is good. So. I like it. I, I thought this was a, uh, you know, very good podcast for us. Um, hopefully you guys found it beneficial as well. Any questions, please uh, don't hesitate to, uh, to reach out to us. Uh, Jerry, you want to you tell them our handles? That's usually your job. I don't want to take <laughs> um, Yeah, so we're at Manips and Sips uh, on Instagram and Facebook. Uh, you can find me at The Decent Doctor or at Trifecta Therapeutics. I'll respond to either. And Brandon's at uh, Think Like a Fellow and at Pursue PT Now. Uh, yeah, we'd love to help out, you know, nerd out about this sort of stuff. You know, if you have things that you argue against or have different uh, intervention strategies, we'd love to hear it. And uh, But, yeah, th- yeah, thanks for listening in or watching in. And, uh, yeah, cheers, everyone. Cheers, guys.